Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. This is Tyler White and today's episode is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law and by Birdie Scrubs. It is a great episode. We have Brent Cope. Uh, Brent Cope is the president of Tempe St. Luke's Hospital here in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, I think you are going to enjoy this episode. I know I did. It is a fantastic episode, and I learned quite a bit. So um, here you go, folks. Brent Cope. Brent, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, you've had a long and prolific career in healthcare, so why don't you uh, get us started by uh, kind of giving us an overview of your career and bringing us up to speed and talking about what you do today. Um, briefly, I, I went back to uh, 1987 when I started in healthcare and uh, began as a just a young kid uh, learning the ropes and uh, trying to figure out, you know, who was on first. I, um, I intended to, to do a career in business administration and had a friend whose dad was a hospital administrator and that fascinated me for a number of reasons. I decided to go down that path. And so I, I carved out a path um, that was not traditional towards uh, becoming a hospital administrator. And um, so I ended up going down that road. And once I got into the industry, I realized that things were changing significantly. Um, in the mid 80s, the government started changing the way it reimbursed hospitals. And that changed a lot of um, uh, delivery system um, aspects. And, um, and that has continued to change over the years. Uh, I think a lot of us have felt the, uh, the impact as users of healthcare. Uh, it's been interesting to be on the uh, provider side, but not be a clinical person. I'm, I'm very much a business person. I didn't go to medical school or pre-med. You know, I'm, I'm very much a business-minded guy. So um, I, I look at the world from maybe what could be from um, an economics perspective, mm-hmm. um, but fully appreciate the clinical side. So I've been doing hospital administration type work for a little over 30 years then. And um, about 20 of those have been as uh, in the chief executive role at various hospitals. I've spent a lot of time working for some of the big for-profits. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll confess that for a while, I, I didn't even want to interview with a nonprofit. And that's that's a kind of a whole nother conversation. Um, if you want to go down there, I'm happy to. But um, the industry has changed a lot over that time. I have since worked for a couple of nonprofit organizations. And, um, um, but um, I think um, healthcare in general is a significantly misunderstood industry, although we all are consumers in it. So uh, I've, I've run hospitals, I've run surgery centers, I've run doctor's offices and clinics, and um, a few other things in between. I've taken a couple of side trips um, into ventures to, uh, to help friends and family members do other business things that are not uh, healthcare related. So I, I understand what it's like to be a small business owner. Um, so uh, that's a little bit about me. So currently you are the chief executive officer of Tempe St. Luke's Hospital. Is that correct? That is that is correct. Um, that that and, and I'll 
there's a, one little correction there. Um, I am the CEO at what most people would call the CEO. Um, if you go back 30 years ago or 40 years ago, almost everybody was called an administrator. And then it became vogue to call that same person a chief executive, even though you may have been part of a large organization and there was actually a chief executive above the chief executive. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, the organization that I work for now, Stewart Healthcare, is a physician-owned uh, organization that's based in um, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, they use the title president, which makes good sense. Um, and uh, so technically the title is president. So you've assumed the role of president of Tempe St. Luke's in about December of 2020. Uh, what was or what were the set of things that you thought you might accomplish in your first year? Well, much like a, a, um, a patient, you have to diagnose the situation first. And I had a business professor long ago that said the numbers in an organization will tell you what's going on, much like the vital um, um, indicators of a patient, like, you know, blood pressure, respiratory rate temperature that that tells a, a nurse or a provider what's going on with a patient and um so the first thing that i did was you know come on in and and listen a lot and um look at some of the numbers a lot of that's been has been affected by covid so 2020 obviously has been a um, tumultuous year yeah. and that was impacting this facility as much as every facility across uh Maricopa County and Arizona in general, especially towards the end of uh, 2020. So a lot of it had to do with responding and recovering from uh, the pandemic that we're in the middle of still, and we're, it's starting to tail off now, but you know, figuring out how do we survive this and how do we get back to normal on the backside. So Brent, I imagine you had to pivot pretty dramatically, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that that it definitely has an impact, although it doesn't really change the overarching, you know, what what direction does the organization need to go in? Where has it been uh, in in you know the situation for Tempe St. Luke's? Tempe St. Luke's has been a community hospital for years. And um, it's well known in this community. Uh, it's not well known outside of Tempe per se. I mean, I'm sure folks have heard about it. A lot of folks associate it with Phoenix St. Luke's and the whole St. Luke's name. And there's some confusion around the closure that happened in Phoenix that did not affect Tempe, um, although there was a shared name there. And so, um, you know, part of the, the, uh, the challenge for our organization is just the normal business growth, you know, typical stuff that goes on in, in operating any organization. Um, but over the years, I, I've tended to um, focus on quality outcomes first. I had, um, I had a mentor at one point tell me that you can't, you can't accomplish anything unless you have great nursing care. And so early in my career, I had the opportunity to, um, to work with somebody who had been a regional quality director and that main office was moving out of state. And so I picked up a, a very experienced individual and, uh, and she became part of a local facility and she had been over, I think 13 or 14 facilities previously. 
she came with a wealth of knowledge and that was very early in my career and that did kind of gave me uh, kind of a bolus injection a, a good jump start on um paying attention to quality and the impact that quality can have on an organization and so ever since then one of the first things that i do is i make sure that the organization is structured around um uh, quality and so that the quality systems within an organization can reach the top level very easily and so you know, that's that's kind of where i started with tempe let's sit down and ask the team and Luckily, I didn't have to convince the team. You know, we have a new medical director um, here and our, our quality director here had, actually had been a regional person in another organization, over four facilities. So got lucky again. And, um, you know, but you always want to sit down and listen to pay attention to what the people that are in the organization are telling you anytime you go into a new job of any type. And, um, and the thing that we heard loud and clear was from the team, Hey, let, let's let's improve our quality scores. Let's let's make them better. And um, and I'm a big fan of four disciplines of execution. If you're uh, it's a Franklin Covey, you know, there's a book written on it and, and they'll do consulting and so forth. And and uh, confession, I've never used their consultants, but I've had tremendous success at different organizations deploying strategies around getting focused and getting the whole team behind um, the, the most important thing that you can get done. And, and that's what we did here. And the team really honed in on, you know, we really need to, um, improve our quality and not just get to be average because that's okay, but let's get to be top shelf. Let's get to be the best in class. So, um, that made it a lot easier to, to initiate what is typically, uh, you know, um, a, a foundation strategy for me, at least that's, that's worked over the years. And then you, then it's a lot easier to attract, um, you know, quality providers in every aspect of the organization, whether that's a, a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a doctor or anything. Yeah. It makes sense to me. If you're focused on quality outcomes, you're going to strive for those outcomes, regardless of the environment in which you're striving for those outcomes. Of course, COVID is going to have a play across every industry, but with your focus on quality, I can see how you can be successful, even with all this gone on in the last year or so. And along those lines, tell me, Brent, how is St. Luke's doing now as it pertains to COVID-19? It's winding down. We are getting really close to letting visitors back in the building. Um, we're watching the community statistics and the positivity rate that's that's out in our community, uh, which is essentially Maricopa County, where Tempe's no different really than than the communities uh, within Maricopa County. So um, at, at one point we were at 190% of our ICU capacity wow. because COVID tends to be, you get sick and a, a disproportionate number of the patients end up in the ICU. And, um, and I'm not clinical, um, but, um, you know, that's the nature of COVID. So um, we're, we're getting back to normalcy. We have shut down one of our overflow um, ICU areas, thankfully. And um, we just this past week were able to shut down uh, a dedicated COVID um, medical surgical telemetry floor. And um, 
and, and those patients are now housed with the COVID ICU patients, although they're technically not ICU, we're, we're keeping you know COVID contained in a specific area. There was um, a lot of um, air scrubbers, if you would, for a generic term, um, that, that can filter things out of the air and, and create airflow that was put into the building. And at one point, there was so many negative air rooms created. And by that, it means air always flows into the room. It never flows back out of the room in, a, in generic terminology. But where it goes when you don't have a system that's designed for that is it just pulls air through the system and pushes it out of the building. So whatever temperature it was outside, um, the building struggled to keep up with maintaining the temperature in the building was one of the non-clinical aspects that can have a clinical impact when you're, uh, you know, in the summertime when the rooms were hotter than normal because outside was hot and we're literally pulling all this air in, scrubbing it and pushing it back out the back side of the building so that it was clean when it left the building. Um, and, it, you know, when it got to be winter, it was chilly in my office because the systems in the building weren't designed to have that much air pulled through the building, scrubbed and pushed out the back end. So we're, we're able to turn a lot of those off and, um, and uh, get back to, we're getting closer to, uh, to normalcy. We were not able to do elective surgeries for a while. We've been able to return to elective surgeries. And, uh, you know, that's kind of an interesting term because, um, you know, something that's purely cosmetic is, is definitely elective. And then there's an emergency surgery and, uh, and then there's a lot of stuff in between that, you know, you, you can live with it, but if you live with it too long, it's going to cause more damage. And so, you know, how, how long can you live with it? And that's kind of a clinical decision, but, um, I, I would, you, you know, we're not doing anything that is, um, purely elective. Everything has an element of need to it, but it's not emergent per se, but we had to stop, um, non-emergency elective surgeries for a period just because there was no room in the building to put anybody and uh, personnel and resources had to be, um, you know, reserved for COVID care. Sure. So was the peak June, July, was that the, was that the worst era? Actually, no. Um, June, July was definitely a surge, mm -hmm. but when we came into the end of the year, um, the second surge that hit us was much deeper or much higher than the first surge. Um, the county actually has a pretty good statistics. If somebody wants to go onto the county um, health department's uh, website and look that up. But it's um, the interesting thing is we tracked it again. We tracked internally against the community and there was definitely a surge in around July. And, uh, and oddly enough, when the ASU students started back um, later in the year, we actually saw a continued decline in cases. We kind of expected, because ASU is right down the street, we kind of expected uh, an uptick at that time, but it continued to stay down. Well, what the uptick ended up correlating with in general uh, was, uh, you know, some of the holidays that started happening, Halloween and Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas and New Year's back to back peaked it out. And um, so we saw a significant rise that um, was well beyond July um, surge, and that happened all the way into January, and that's been falling now for a few weeks. 
Good, good. I'm glad to hear that it's falling. And the vaccine is certainly playing a part in this, I'm sure. Yeah, I think herd immunity in every in every way is starting to have an impact. Um, we're anxious to uh, to get vaccines into as many people as we can. Um, the the distribution system in Maricopa County was that of a pod system. So everyone went to a county site and just recently um, different um, locations have been able to get the vaccine. So um, our sister hospital has the vaccine. We're still waiting for our delivery. Uh, it's a little tricky to handle because of the type of vaccine that it is. It's not your normal vaccine. So so storage systems have to be in place and you have to apply for it and the, the you know paperwork that's involved. But um, we're anticipating getting vaccine in any day now at, uh, at Tempe. So. so I'm going to ask you a question now that uh, kind of relates to COVID, but I, I'm sure it, it relates more broadly to your hospital's uh, protocols and procedures. Uh, Tempe St. Luke's provides acute care. So it provides care to folks who uh, need to get better. But oftentimes, I'm sure there are folks who don't uh, recover all the way. Their health plateaus and uh, they still need care, but not that acute care. At which point, I'm sure you have a team of discharge planners who try to find uh, skilled nursing care for these for these patients. But what happens when you have um, a patient who has already exhausted all of his or her Medicare days or insurance days and is perhaps incapacitated, uh, maybe doesn't have any family members to help, um, and, and needs to transition to uh, skilled nursing care? How do you discharge this individual? How do you find a path to get this individual into a long-term care setting? Yeah, that's, you, you just described one of the toughest situations that's out there. Um, um, generally speaking, people have some family member or some power of attorney or some guardianship that's in place. Um, if there's absolutely nothing in place um, and they need to be moved through the system, to, to get a different level of care, um, that's we, we'll lean on legal uh, departments to and, or you know folks like you know Jackson White that has got a senior senior uh, care attorney kind of a deal because sometimes you have to figure out who actually has the right to make a decision. Generally speaking, somebody that is without any financial resources left will qualify for some type of an ass of assistance. And so it's getting them qualified. Um, most hospitals um, that I'm aware of have a person in the building whose sole job is to figure out how this person's going to be able to financially deal with um, the unexpected, because nobody plans on getting sick. Right. Um, and the only time somebody plans on coming to a hospital is when they're gonna have a baby yeah. um, or, or something cosmetic. Um, but for the most part, there every hospital will have somebody in the building that will help find a program. And generally speaking, it's Medicaid in Arizona. We call it access um, to find them to the financial resources, because unlike an acute care hospital, uh, post acute care facilities don't have to take the patient. But if someone is within 
250 yards of an acute care hospital that has an emergency department and they're seeking care, they're going to get at least an evaluation to determine on whether or not they're, they're having an emergency. So they're going to get some level of care by virtue of being within a certain distance and seeking care. So general acute care hospitals end up getting people into the building that the person's financially then stuck. Um, they don't have any personal resources and the, you know, the assistance that they might have, even, you know, if they just qualify for an emergency assistance program, um, it may or may not help them long-term. So there's two different questions in, in, um, in your question, you know, who's going to make the decision. And if there's no family members, that's, you know, we turn to, to legal counsel and say, okay, who has the legal authority to make this decision? And, and uh, if a guardian has to be designated, then sometimes a guardian, you know, we have to go to the courts and get a guardian designated for certain decisions and certain patients. Um, in our setting, that doesn't happen as much. Um, there are hospitals where that happens more frequently and it goes along the lines of specialty care. Um, and, and those are um, behavioral hospitals where someone doesn't have mental capacity to make decision more frequently. Um, but the financial component, usually there's some, some resource in the community that can help the individual. And it does become a bit of a challenge. It, it's, it's, um, we're, we're not well set up for the process of post-acute care in, in our country, I don't think. Right, right. That is a, that is a very, tough scenario. And, um, I, I, I have to admit, I asked the question kind of selfishly because that's kind of the space I'm in. And I was just really curious as to, as to what types of policies and procedures you have in place. Um, so let me, let me, um, let me talk to you about, uh, a couple of the issues that, that we've, we've discussed in our dialogue leading up to this conversation. Um, do you know how much, um, how much we're spending as a nation on, um, on healthcare. Yeah. We, unfortunately we spend somewhere in the neighborhood of 17, 18% of our GDP, um, on, on our, on our healthcare dollars. I think, I think the number is 3.8 uh, billion or, I mean, let me look it up here real quick. With a but T it's, it's a T 3.8 trillion. T. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, but the, the number that I always have in my head is 17.7 or 15, you know, it's been climbing. I mean, when I got in the industry, it was, it was down around um, 9% of our GDP. So if you look at that in terms of if you have a budget and the cost of your house was, it cost you one week of wages and um, you know, that that's 25% of your, your income. That's, that's pretty significant. That's what a lot of us spend, but it, if it doubled and went to 50%, of how much you were spending on, on your day-to-day -day, um, living, or excuse me, what you had coming in, something else has to give. You, you stop spending money on other things and, and you're kind of forced into it. And all of us have a body, so it's hard to avoid spending money. You can, it's one thing to not spend money on luxury items, but you know, everybody has an appendix. And if you're in the number that, <laughs> that goes that year, you're gonna spend the money. That's right, that's right. And, um, and do we see, well, it's only been a year, um, but are the projections that this number will rise with, with COVID? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, you just think about, 
Maricopa County had a, you know, it's got a regular phone call that happens that's talking about who's got beds and where are we transferring them. There's a surge line that that the state has been running that you can call into and say, you know, I'm in Yuma. I don't have any more beds anywhere in our county. Does anybody have a bed? And so they'll transfer the patients who've been transferred from all over the place. So just that number alone uh, gives you an indication that everybody is at capacity. So people are doubling and tripling their volumes of what's been going on. On the flip side, you have a lot of surgical cases, which tend to be more expensive that are not happening. So I haven't heard a prediction, mm -hmm. um, but it'll definitely happen. It's more of a blip on the radar, to be honest with you. I think our problems in healthcare in the United States um, go beyond a pandemic blip. It, there, it's a bit of a systemic issue for us. So Right. So let's say we get COVID under control um, and we take that off the table. Um, is, is this sustainable, this type of uh, healthcare spending? It's absolutely not. I mean, if you look at, at our growth curve, you know, back back in, like you say, when I started in uh, the mid to early 80s, we were uh, right at or just below 10%. And now we're up almost at 20%. And if you take my kids and say, we're going to let that growth continue, it gets to 40% of GDP, literally everything everybody earns is going to 40% of it's going to go to healthcare. You know, we complain that um, our taxes are too high. And my goodness, what if we, you know, lived in one of those countries that taxed you and, and the country ran everything and, and your taxes were super high? Healthcare alone is going to be the, you know, total tax spend. <laughs> um, and so we've got to get it under control. And, and we are headed for a cliff. And uh, I think part of the challenge that exists in healthcare is, Americans are in love, and, and I am too, uh, in love with a pure market mentality, a free market. Um, the problem is that healthcare doesn't lend itself to free market behavior. And it is very much a, um, a different commodity. When you think about, there's a difference between a pure market and a free market. And we all, we, we look at the United States and we say, oh yeah, it's a free market. And um, that doesn't mean it's a pure market. A pure market allows people to come and go in the economy at will, whether you're a buyer or a seller, and there's no buyer or seller that can dominate the market. And there's information about what you're buying. And uh, all those things come together to allow supply and demand and what's called the invisible hand to work in, in a quote, free economy. But if you don't have a pure economy, every step you away, you, you know, farther away you get from pure economy, you start to affect whether or not a free economy can actually function. Um, and so healthcare has been one of those industries that is, you know, it's very complex. Uh, I certainly, I mean, I, I, I've spent my whole career inside of a hospital. I'm not clinical. So I absorb things, but I still don't know. I still have to go to somebody else. I don't know that I need something. Somebody has to tell me that I need it. And, and the crazy part is in healthcare, the person that tells me that I need that thing is the <laughs> provider or the supply side. Mm -hmm. So the supply side actually creates the demand side and significantly affects it. Yep. Now, that's changing with the, with the Internet. Um, I had one internist um, in a community, um, uh, not in this state, tell me that he was getting frustrated 
that patients more frequently would come into his office and they walked in and they treated him like he was a baggage boy at the checkout stand at the supermarket. They would just come in and say, this is the medication I need. And um, this is the symptoms I'm having. And so I just need a prescription written from you. <laughs> and he said, you know, it kind of diminishes everything that I did to become a physician. And he said, the worst part is sometimes they're actually right. And it's a little, you know, frightening that. Um, and so on one hand, we're gaining a lot of information. On the other hand, a little bit of information can be dangerous, can be more dangerous than no information. But right. healthcare is a product that it's not like buying um, bottled water or um, milk or a car or clothing where, you know, the consumer simply makes a decision and goes out and buys it and knows what they're buying and can make a decision about whether or not it was good enough. Um, typically you go, and this applies to everything healthcare, not just hospitals and, and medical doctors, but it applies to dentists. And, you know, the same thing applies to your vet um, to some degree. Um, it's interesting. I always uh, fascinated by the differences between the way vets have to talk to their pet owners and the way a, a, a pediatrician talks to a parent. There is no doubt if your child needs something that you're going to get it for them. But uh, a, um, a veterinarian will will let you know and then they'll tell you the cost and then you're going to make a decision. You know, do we want to keep Fido alive for another year? Because dialysis, you know, it's pretty expensive for your dog. And, and that literally happened to us in our family. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a whole different decision process. Yeah. Consequently, you don't have a free market. And to the extent that you can get information into people's hand, they're going to make a different decision. And I think the way that we have spent money in our economy is different than the way that they spend money in Germany or Canada or Switzerland. And that has definitely had an impact because we get farther and farther or further and further away um, from the decision process. And so um, I think the free market still can have a, uh, a significant role and I don't think the United States has to completely go away from that. Uh, I've seen systems set up and they're starting to emerge and there's more than one of them out. And one of them is actually based in Scottsdale um, here where, you know, the, you're, they're putting information in the hands of the consumer or closer to the hands of the consumer and the consumer starts to make a better decision. And you start to see a radical reduction in the total dollars spent per year per person. And I've seen a reduction reported as much as 70% less than what the organization was spending in the past. Um, but it's a, different, it's a different process. And the individual has to participate in that process and has to make a decision. Um, I, I, I tell people healthcare in the United States is, is kind of like, you know, we all have champagne taste, but yet we have a beer budget. We, we spend $20 on a copay and after that, it, we don't even know how much it costs. And when we see the bill, we have a heart attack or we get upset at somebody because the bill is so high. And um, and that's partly because we never paid attention. We're, consumers are so distant from the actual costs of healthcare that um, we don't realize it when I have to spend more than, um, than my 10% or my 20%. And most of us don't even pay for the premium of insurance. And That's the insurance right. has become a product that is, I mean, we're buying preventative health care um, through insurance 
you, you don't buy preventative maintenance for your car. You, you would never buy a tire rotation, an oil change, um, or a, you know anything else with maintenance on your vehicle. You would never buy that through your insurance carrier. You're going to spend the money. So why are you buying it through your insurance carrier? Well, there's a lot of economic structures in the United States that incentivize that behavior. And so we buy in a very fragmented way, and the consumer doesn't really participate in the purchase process as much as they ought to. And, um, and they don't have access to good decisions. And when they do get access to the decision, they're relying on an individual who was trained to deliver care, not manage your cost. And, you know, we all consider that a good thing. We don't want our physician to be figuring out how much money to save, you know, if your kid needs, there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. You want them to, um, to make a decision based off of the healthcare. So it's a very difficult um, and conflated situation when it comes to how to resolve it. But anyway. Yeah, it sure is. There are a lot of re- reverse incentives at play. Uh, and um, a, a lot of information is, is lacking in, in the hands of the actual consumer of the healthcare. Um, so with all of that being said, uh, what do you see, what do you see for the future? If, if, if the track we're on is untenable, um, what do you see playing out over the next 10, 20, maybe 30 years? I don't even think you have to wait that long. I think, um, um, I, I, you know, if you want, I think what's going to happen right now, because you have one party controlling all aspects of the federal government, you're going to see a significant movement towards that party's agenda. Uh, And that's always the case, regardless of which party is in, you're going to, you know, when you have absolute control, you tend to move a lot faster towards your ideals. And, um, you know, the the sad part, from my opinion, is I don't know that we need to move to the situation where someone else is making more and more of my decisions. That makes me uncomfortable as an individual. Um, And I've seen systems set up where the average Joe, whether, you know, whether that was a a professional nurse or a a plumber or a gardener actually has their healthcare costs reduced because they had access to somebody who was capable of, you know, helping them navigate the decisions as opposed to just jumping into a system that was designed to manage emergencies. Most of us go to emergency departments um, and not as much in this decade as it has been in the past because you see urgent cares popping up. But now people go to micro hospitals that are essentially standalone emergency rooms thinking they're an urgent care care center and then they get the bill and it's $9,000. And that's that's an actual story. I just got a phone call from a good friend how did I went to an urgent care? How did I get to nine thousand dollars? I start asking him questions, and you realize, oh, you actually went to an emergency department. Mm-hmm. And he feels a little duped, but then when he stood back and looked at it, it was like, yep, it actually says hospital on the outside of the building. I just thought it was a small urgent care. Yep. And That's we spend money. Uh, yeah. Exact same we, thing. <laughs> we, we spend money, and, and we're not. We don't slow down a little bit. And um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. I, um, I'm a cyclist and I, I love to, I'm a road cyclist. And so I, I love riding. Um, and there's two kinds of cyclists, those that have gone down and have had road rash and those that are going to go down. And <laughs> it's a I went down one day and I was, I was going faster than I should have uh, around a corner that 
all of the friends had been chatting about earlier in the group ride and I just wasn't paying attention. And I hit that corner and it was tighter turn and I hit gravel and I, I, I separated my shoulder mm. and it was not good. I couldn't ride home. We're distance away. And everybody in the group's first reaction was, should we call an ambulance? And what I did was I called a nurse practitioner and started asking some questions. Now there was also a, I didn't even think about it at the time, but I had had, by the time I'd had this conversation um, there, I realized that there was a, an MD in the group uh, as well. And, um, I, but I didn't need the MD to be able to make the decisions. I, I got somebody on a phone and she asked me a series of questions. Luckily I had a good helmet. I didn't have any signs of any other um, emergent care. And I did have urgent care, but I didn't know to go, need to go to an emergency department for urgent care. Mm -hmm. And so um, I ascertained, I made the decision, you know what, I'm going to be fine based off of what she's telling me. And, and I'm going to make a decision that I'm okay taking this risk. I'm not going to go to the emergency department. And um, she called in a prescription for me to go to an outpatient imaging center, which I did. And um, I went there, I negotiated a cash price I got a shoulder series done, an x-ray uh, on my shoulder, uh, and in fact, did have a separated shoulder and um, went down to the clinic and was seen at the clinic for the road rash and the abrasions that I had were pretty bad. And um, I think I got a shot, you know, probably some prophylactic, um, something that they gave me. And uh, so I ended up with a, an, a doctor's office visit fee and a, a an x-ray and you know i'm paying less than 200 dollars. and if i would have gone to an emergency department i probably would have run up a 10 or twenty thousand dollar bill easy and that's partly because i know the industry but it's also because you know i kept a cool head and i called somebody that could help me make a good clinical decision for myself in my immediate situation and luckily I have access to somebody. Now, the systems that are developing basically put that individual in uh, in the role of we're here whenever you need us. Um, and, and so telemedicine is beginning to grow. And thank goodness, that's the one good thing that came out of COVID. Everybody started accepting um, telemedicine before. Everybody's a little sketchy about it. And the, and the insurance companies make the rules. And so if they don't pay for it, the doctor's not going to want to do it because they can't afford to just give you care what they do for free. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars going to school. They can't afford to not get paid. Right. Um, and you might think, well, doctors make too much money, but um, that's a whole other conversation. But at the end of the day, um, the, the insurance companies are making rules that benefit when you get right down to it, insurance companies. And, um, you know, now there's a limit on the percentage of profits an insurance company can take out of the dollars that it brings in on premiums. But what does that do? It actually fixes their incentive on not letting the overall cost go down. Because if 20% of $3.8 trillion turns into um, 1.9 trillion, guess what happened to 20% of $1.9 trillion? It didn't go to the coffers of an insurance company and in that that insurance company is publicly traded, that affected your income and your retirement. And so you might not be happy about that if you own stock in an insurance company. 
So there's a lot of moving parts that a lot of we're, I don't think that we're ready as a society to just get uh, get our hands around this. It, it, there's too, there's a lot of things that people need to be honest about before we're ready to fix the system. But it's fixable. And I don't think we have to go to a single payer to do it. Hmm. It, it really does sound like there is a, there are a series of conflicting goals at at really every level. I mean, as the administrator, you're looking at the bottom line of the hospital. Uh, physicians want to provide care um, with without sometimes maybe without regard to the bottom line of the hospital. Um, we have um, we have primary care practices that are owned by hospitals that maybe serve as loss leaders to get people into the hospital. Um, it really does seem, seem like there are conflicting goals at every every single level. Uh, and as part of an industry uh, that not only has all these conflicting goals, but also has such high demands and high expectations, uh, do you see burnout as a prevalent problem among the healthcare industry? Absolutely. Um and I, I, I did a present, I did, I had, I brought somebody in to do a presentation and I've actually got a good friend here that, um, uh, that does, that's his kind of his specialty is physician burnout. He's a, a retired surgeon, but it's, you know, the prevalence of suicide is on the, on the, uh, on the increase. Uh, and, and when I told the medical staff, when I did, I didn't tell them the presenter told the medical staff that, um, I was working at, this was in Los Angeles, uh, just about, uh, over 10 years ago, um, that this was a lot of people just denied it. Like, no, no, that we, you know, doctors don't commit suicide. Um, we don't do that. <laughs> and, um, but it, it's significant. And if you think about it, you've got the patient has gotten used to getting everything for a, a minimum. You know, if, if you went shopping for groceries and all you had to pay was $20 and then 10% of the bill, you'd probably never buy cheap hamburger ever again if you even bought hamburger ever again. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you wouldn't care what was on sale and what wasn't on sale. You, 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 as a shopper, you behave completely different. So we as consumers um, don't care how much benefit we're getting out of it. We wanna spend all the money that you got in that coffer because somebody else paid the premium, at least my, you know, the employer paid half of my premium a lot of times and small businesses are not in that category, but, um, so you got the patient that that expects that. And then you have an insurance company that doesn't want to spend anything more than it has to. And then you have a physician in the middle who's been trained not to think about anything financial and only give the champagne level delivery or, you know, platinum service to the consumer. Um, and, and you've got realities. And so, um, you know, people are struggling to survive and, and, and make a living. And uh, I tell people, you know, you, you go back 30 years when uh, when I was in healthcare, uh, the average employee's wages, in including housekeeping to engineering to respiratory therapy to nursing to everybody in the building, was less than half the average hourly rate in that same community today. Wow! And um, but I would venture to say that in the last 30 years. And that's absolute dollars. That's not adjusted for anything. I'm just talking absolute dollars. I would venture to say that there are very few, if any, medical specialties where the physician provider 
makes more than twice as much as they did at that period of time. They're, they're going to make more. No, no two ways about it. But um, um, every 20 years or so, most people's wages are going to double. The physicians in the community don't typically double. They tend to go in spurts and it has, it's driven by supply and demand. And if there's not enough of this, then they tend to get more. And if they got too many people went to school that year, um, then they might not even be able to get a job. And um, so does that just pertain to see why a lot of physicians, does that just pertain to the primary care physicians or, or does that hold true with specialists no, no. as well? No, no, that's all specialties. Wow. Um, and, and there's some specialties that have um, been diminished by technology. Mm-hmm. So if you go back 30 years ago and you had a heart attack, um, your chances of needing open heart surgery were pretty high. Um, today, that's greatly diminished um, because of the advent of cardiovascular um, uh, technology that they can go in and they can take a balloon and open up that vessel and then put a little stent in there. And that little stent, you know, leaks, if you would, in, in generic terminology, uh, it eludes drugs to keep the vessel from collapsing, which some will debate isn't effective. And, you know, but, but the point is um, there's technology now that keep you from even having that surgery. Mm-hmm. So, so cardiothoracic surgeons um, there are just fewer needed. And, and if there's too many in a town and it's kind of adjusted now since it's been long enough, but there was a period where they just took a literal cut in pay in, in absolute dollars because they just weren't working enough. Hmm. So that's kind of adjusted now because not as many cardiothoracic surgeons have been in need in the community. So they don't, you know, so it's kind of adjusted over time. But that's that kind of thing happens with different, and I think it's going to happen a lot more. There's a there's a book written recently uh, by a, the author. His last name is Topol. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon in Southern California, and he was head of a million lives study um, that uh, the Affordable Care Act initiated. And he wrote. He's written a couple of books. That one of the most interesting ones was called the destructive, the creative destruction of healthcare. And he talks about how, as as we become more and more um, aware of our own personal health, and as technology advances and gives people capabilities to do things in a much more affordable way, you begin to democratize healthcare in general, and um, and that has an impact. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I hate to use the example because it's it's so far away from healthcare. But look what Uber did to taxi cab services; it just demolished them in some towns. That's right. And um, uh, you know, right now I'm sitting here wearing a device that monitors my heart rate all day long and keeps track of how much sleep I got last night. And it makes me aware of it. And with that information, I sleep. I make different decisions about the way I sleep now. Is it the whoop? I exercise, and I can monitor with different devices that are now affordable, I can monitor how hard I'm exercising and whether I'm exercising too hard and whether I'm not exercising hard enough. Is this and the whoop app or the whoop band you're referring to? The whoop band is, I don't wear a whoop band. Um, that's even a, at a higher level uh, of technology. I, I'm wearing a simple Garmin watch. Okay. And um, But Apple Watch, you know, the new Apple Watch is, you, you can get an EKG runoff. It's a pretty simple one. Yeah. Um, but... Um, there are things out there now that you can monitor pretty much every organ in the body with some type of simple 
adapter onto a smartphone. It is and, amazing. It is and amazing. You can you're starting to see reports of uh, things like you know retinal scans and skin cancer uh, evaluations, and you're getting uh, artificial intelligence that's making a decision. They never have a bad day, and they never get emotional, and they don't ever think about the monetary impact. They just give you the truth, and when you have the truth, you start to make more accurate decisions. Now, they're still your decision, and you can decide whether you want to you know, change your sleep habits or not, but at least you have the information. And without that information, you're just kind of flying blind and you go back far enough. And when people had cancer, we didn't even tell them they had cancer. We quietly whispered it to their spouse, you know, or somebody, and we didn't even talk about it. You yeah. Know? So the more information we have, the closer we can become to being those rational actors in that economic system. Yeah. Like you're saying, yeah. without that information, how can we act rationally? We really can't, but it is yeah. becoming so much easier. I, 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 I did purchase the, the whoop band and it has helped tremendously with my sleep. And it's amazing all the stuff that all the data it gives me probably too much data, but, um, and it tells me, Hey, if you stretch within 20 minutes of going to sleep, you are likely to have, uh, you're likely to be 20% more recovered the following day. And sure enough, I follow some instructions and there you go. There you go. Uh, it's it's very very impressive. Um, so so uh, we've talked about burnout being prevalent, and I know that we're we're cutting we're cutting it close on time here. Um, uh, maybe let's switch gears just a little bit. Do you have a Do you have a family? Do you have a wife and kids? Married. Uh, it'll be thirty nine years. Oh, congratulations! In a few months, four kids, eight grandchildren. Good. Love for them you. all. Good for you. Big family. Um, so what do you do? You have, you, you have a demanding job. How do you balance, uh, your work life with your home life? Um, and kind of put it all together to, uh, avoid burnout in your own, in your own life. I, it's basic stuff, you know, and it, it, I'm sure everybody's heard this kind of stuff before, but if you don't have, if you're not spiritually centered, if you don't have a religion that you, that can ground you, um, then I think you're missing something significant. If you don't have some type of activity that takes care of your physical body, you're going to live in it and you only get one. And um, no matter what people think about surgery, um, and there's a lot of great surgeons out there, but the new part's never as good as the one that you grew um, when you got your body and you need to take care of it. And uh, so I think that's part of it. And there's just so many benefits about exercise, but I think um, I, I've always found it interesting that humans pay more attention to what their pets eat than they do what they eat. So we're very we're very conscientious about giving your fish or your cat or your dog the right kind of food, but we're not very conscientious about what we put in our own bodies. And uh, so uh, I spend a lot of time paying attention to those two things, probably equally. Uh, diet is as big a deal to me and I eat very little meat. Um, and, uh, I try to eat things in their season. Mm -hmm. Um, but meat and dairy, I try to do sparingly, but I, I love them both. So, um, that's always a challenge for me. And then I think social life, you got to have a social life that, um, you know, we're humans. Um, I, one thing I enjoy about cycling is usually you can do it with a group. And uh, this last year, I've not been able to do it as much. I mean, we stopped cycling in groups um, because of COVID. 
And then when it came back, my routine had changed and, you know, I just haven't gotten back into the group. And I do, I do miss that aspect of it, but um, I've always looked for opportunities to integrate my work responsibilities and community responsibilities into my family life, because that's my social center. And um, that's what I care about more than anything else is making sure that my family is happy and together. Um, it's more important to me than literally anything. And so um, I always look for opportunities to overlap those things and bring them together as frequently as possible. And I think that minimizes um, the stress and the pull. I, I think a lot of people go through life um, letting other people decide what their priorities are. And we don't slow down and, um, and make decisions about what we want. And we become someone else's um, you know, um, pawn, if you would. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, my kids have always gotten sick of hearing me say it, you know, if you're sitting there watching television and you're watching the whole commercial, you, you're basically giving them part of your brain and, um, you shouldn't do that. I mean, it's the only one you got. You should fill it with stuff you want, not what somebody else wants. And I think whether you're, you know, I could go on and on with different stories about that, but I, in every aspect of life, I think we need to be intentional about the way we do things. And the more intentional I am, I find the happier I am. And when I make decisions that, um, um, that I decide this is what I want. And, um, and I think the more I look to make my, my life, um, where I'm less the center of things and other people are more important to me than, than than I am to myself. I, I, um, I accept that I need to be important and take care of myself. But I think um, in a society where the only thing that matters in, in societal terms feels like the individual and whether, you know, lie, steal, cheat, and lie, cheat or steal, it doesn't matter as long as you win the game, you know, it's irrelevant. And I think that's destructive to us as individuals. And so I push away from that and and try and make conscious decisions to include other people and make other people a priority in my life as opposed to myself. And um, I, that makes me happier. Yeah, so it really does. I was going to follow up by asking um, if you could only keep one thing uh, to uh, to keep your life balanced, what would it be? But I'm not even going to ask that question because the way you answered it, um, was so much richer. It's as if there are certain pillars of health that all have to be, all have to be filled. And when you, you talked about nutrition and you talked about exercise, exercise, and you talked about, um, being other centric as opposed to self centric and having a, a spiritual basis and operating like the social creatures that we are and, um, and, and, connecting with others on a, on a social level. So you touched on so many good things there. And I, really and I know you're out of time. You're we're running tight on time, but let me give you one thing though. When Please you do. said that the first thing that came to my mind was my ability to make a choice. Because mm -hmm. if I can choose, then if you take that away from me, then my whole life begins to, to fall apart. But if you let me choose then whatever I decide on any one of those aspects is my choice and I'm going to be better off with it as the way I see myself. If you take away my choice, then I, I and, and I feel like that in any aspect of my life. 
So I think my personal free agency is the most valuable thing I have. Agency, agency and intentionality, wise words, wise sentiments. Well, um, before we adjourn, uh, is there anything that perhaps I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Mm, I think, no. Um, I like talking about families and personalities more than work, but it's all important <laughs> stuff. So, Well, maybe we'll have to circle back in a few months and, and devote some time to talking about families. Sounds good. I'd love it. I, I, and this has been enjoyable. A little nervous to get started, you know, but uh, I, I appreciate being invited onto the program. Well, I appreciate your time, and I'm so grateful that you, that you joined me. And I'm sure that uh, my listenership will have, they will, they will gain a lot from this, uh, of this, I am sure. So thank you so much for your time and have a lovely day. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care now. You've been listening to the Wellbeings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.